if one man truly had a vision of a golden age of Islam, it was arguably the Khalif al-Ma'mun, son of the famous Harun al-Rashid. It was during his reign when sponsorship of the sciences and arts reached its height and the Islamic community came closest to healing the divisions of its past century. Well, even in the West, we love to celebrate the cultural and intellectual achievements of al-Ma'mun's reign and contrast these with the centuries of decline, oppression, and traditionalism that would later stifle Muslim society. But in truth, the seeds of that decline were put in place during this glory age of Ma'mun's rule. So rather than just take a simplistic narrative that shows the Islamic civilization reaching a peak and then declining, one day waking up and deciding to trade free thinking for conservatism, we want today to look at the reality of the process of how this transformation was set in motion, how this peak of intellectual achievement and caliphal power actually planted the seeds for later decline. That's our subject today, so please stay tuned. Welcome back. The best known of the Islamic caliphs in the West is certainly Harun al-Rashid, the fifth Abbasid caliph who reigned during the turn of the 9th century. And this is due in part to the fact that he's immortalized in the Arabian Nights or the Thousand and One Nights tales. And in fact, it was Harun al-Rashid who started the great Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom, which we have discussed, that really came to be the center of learning and science and research and debate in the Muslim world. But although Harun al-Rashid began these things, it was really under his son, al-Ma'mun, that Beit al-Hikmah reached its height, and was certainly al-Ma'mun who had the most ambitious vision for his rule. Ma'mun saw himself as no less than the Imam of the age, the spiritual guide for all Muslims, the ultimate authority on religious as well as political matters, saw himself as the one who would reconcile the division between Sunni and Shia and all the other factions and bring about a unity that had not existed since the time of the Prophet Muhammad. At the same time, he saw himself leading the fight against the enemies of Islam, and that included finally defeating and converting the Byzantine Empire. Well, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we know that he did not achieve these things. But Mahmoud's attempt would essentially create what is the Sunni world as we know it today. As we like to say about history, for better or worse. All right, so how did he get there? Well, when Harun al-Rashid was the caliph, he designated his two sons, Al-Amin and Al-Ma'mun, as first and second successors. Now, Ma'mun was the older, but Ma'mun was born of a concubine, whereas Amin had uh, royal blood on, on both sides. So, Harun al-Rashid, this great caliph, produced uh, one of the most complicated succession 
agreements of really of any caliph, the divided power between his two sons. Amin was definitely going to be first in line and was going to become the caliph. Uh, but Ma'mun was not only second in line, but was given a lot of power himself. And particularly, he was to rule to be the governor of the Abbasid homeland of Khorasan. And we've talked a lot about Khorasan whenever we talk about the Abbasids. This is in northeastern Iran today. It was their homeland and their power base. Of course, the idea that Harun al-Rashid had was to ensure harmony and fairness and balance. But there's one lesson of history is that you really can't control things from the grave. And the attempts to control what happens after you die usually end in trouble. And this is the case here. Uh, this ended up in a civil war. Today, of course, we talk about the glorious reign of al-Ma'mun, so we can see who won that civil war. But what actually happened, we may never know. And part of this is always the victors write the history. So the history of this era was essentially written by the supporters of al-Ma'mun. So whether Amin was actually the immoral, guideless idiot that he's made out to be in the histories, or he just happened to lose and was painted that way, we'll never know. He, he might actually have turned out to be a good caliph, but he certainly never got the chance. He spent what little reign he had fighting a, a civil war against his brother. Also, it's difficult to tell what the actual arrangement of power was supposed to be. Now, we have this very elaborate agreement that Amin violated and was used as the justification for Mahmoud rebelling against his brother. But modern historians look at this and say it looks curiously specific. I mean, we have Harun al-Rashid commanding Amin, the caliph, not to do things to his brother that it seems very unlikely he would have been so specific about. So a lot of people are skeptical for the so the odds are, though, that this thing was either fabricated or at least embellished to some extent after Amin's defeat. At any rate, Mahmoud does win the civil war and becomes caliph, and so that's what we have to deal with. But we can see right from the very start, Mahmoud's going to have a legitimacy problem. For one thing, he's overthrown the designated caliph and had him killed, and that also happens to be his brother. But really, the bigger issue here these rulers don't exist in a vacuum. They have huge bases of support. And so he has a legitimacy problem with all these people whose power was based on supporting Amin. Well, where Mahmoud first got the idea to rebel against his brothers, we don't know for sure. We do know that once he got out to Khorasan, he found some strong anti-Baghdad sentiment there. Uh, there was a feeling that the central authority overtaxed and misruled this region, which seems to be very true. Uh, this was a place that officials who were out of favor in Baghdad often got sent. There were also a good deal of unhappy Shia in the region, and we know this was the biggest source of rebellion at the time. Mahmoud's vizier, or his minister, was a very clever man, uh, they all were, to get into that position, but a man named Fadl ibn Sahal. And he definitely saw the opportunity to use Ma'mun to go back to Baghdad and seize power. At the same time, there were large numbers of Turkish and Persian tribes 
These were Islamic tribes, but they were fairly hostile to the central government because they had not been really fully integrated. Anyway, there is a lot of support for Ma'mun to rebel, but when we look at Ma'mun, it probably wasn't very hard to convince him. Well, Ma'mun has a slight problem. Although he does have troops out in Khorasan, they're not effective enough to challenge the central army of the Khalif. So he had to make alliances, but he quickly found that the Turkish and Persian tribes out there could be valuable allies to him. They were very good fighters. Now, no one could see it at the time. This looked like a move of convenience, but this decision to bring these tribes in as his military was going to be one of the most important decisions in Muslim history. Eventually, they ended up taking over the empire. Ma'mun's forces were greatly outnumbered by the Arab troops that Amin had under them. And so when Amin finally realizes the threat that his brother poses, he sends an army out to get them. It looks like Amin's got the upper hand. Nonetheless, Ma'mun won several huge victories and turned the tide very quickly. He drove the central army all the way back to Baghdad. Now, why was this possible? Well, it's often speculated that the Abbasid forces, who had originally come from this area, had lost their ability as mounted warriors. Now, one of the key things we know throughout history is that this area of Central Asia is the domain of nomadic, mounted, particularly archers, uh, cavalry forces. This is where some of the greatest mounted warriors in history have come from, the Huns, the Turks, and a few centuries later, this is where the Mongols are going to come from. And this region is sort of like the gateway into the Middle East. And so there is some evidence to back this up, the fact that in these battles, the, the Turks won easily over the much larger Arab army. But once they got to Baghdad, everything slowed down and what had been a quick victory up to this point turned into a very slow and destructive battle for the capital that lasted a year, ended up with the destruction and ruin of much of the capital and finally the beheading of Amin. This of course is going to make Ma'mun's legitimacy problem much worse. So up to this point you're probably thinking this doesn't sound like a guy who's on the path to become one of the most powerful and influential caliphs of all time. Well, despite the rough start, Ma'mun was nothing if not ambitious. Okay, he knew he needed new alliances and he needed to build new power bases fast. But in doing so, he saw the opportunity to remake the empire. Remember, the Abbasid Caliphate is uh, fairly new at this point. It's only about a half century. And they're trying to redo the way things had been done under the Umayyads. So to, to an extent, he does have somewhat of a blank canvas to work with. So his plan was a grand reconciliation uh, like none other. So let's look at the man himself. Partially, the ambition came from the fact that Ma'mun was really a very gifted intellectual and he knew it. Like all the children of the Khalifs, he was given a rigorous education. His father, Harun al-Rashid, instructed his tutor to be very hard on him. Like the other elites, Ma'mun would learn the Quran, he'd learn Islamic law, he'd learn poetry and music. Uh, he would get into the Greek sciences and logic, which were beginning to be translated at this point. But he really seems to have considered himself a top-notch intellectual. 
He loved the study of rationalism and reason above all else. He loved to debate and to host gatherings of great thinkers. We talked about the Kalam movement. This had a huge growth under Mahmoud. He loved bringing together the Jews and the Christians and other faiths and having them debate and to debate his companions. And it seems like people could debate against Mahmoud and give him their best, and there was no hostile repercussions. He really loved this. By contrast, we hear him talking about the general population. He calls them the rabble, the mob of commoners, and he seems to have contempt for anybody who just accepts teaching unquestionably, even though he's technically responsible for all of these people. But he has a special place on his bad list for the traditionalists. This is the Ma'mun who is famous in the Western world, and but there is more to him than that. Ma'mun was also motivated by an idea that is almost lost to us today. He becomes Khalif in the year 813. Now, that is close to the 200-year anniversary of the death of the Prophet Muhammad, who died in 632. So, millennialism, which is the idea that we're near the end of times, and some great leader is going to come and lead us into the final battle, through the great cataclysm. This is popular in, in all religions. It's hugely popular in Christianity, and basically every Christian generation since the time of Christ has been convinced that they were living in the end times. I mean, just go look at Christian books today or listen to the radio and you can find plenty of people telling you that we're, you know, no more than 10 years from the end of the world and they've been saying the same thing 100 years ago and so on. Well, this was popular in Islam as well, and people always tend to look for round numbers, anniversaries. So the 200th year of the Prophet's passing was seen by many as being, again, the end to history in Mahmoud, who already had a great vision of himself and his destiny, eagerly bought into the idea that he was, he was the leader for this final age. And the fact that they've gotten rid of the Umayyads, who they like to think were corrupt and so forth, this all sort of played into this. But above all these factors, Mahmoud had a definite idea that he was on a religious mission to reconcile the Muslim community. And this is where his attempt to reconcile Sunni and Shia comes in. Now again, I have to warn that the terms Sunni and Shia really don't apply at this point. They don't become formalized until about the middle of the 900s. Historians like to use the term proto-Sunni, proto-Shia for the people who would become those, but of course that's very awkward. In any case, if Mahmoud had been successful, these terms would have disappeared and we wouldn't be using them today. Certainly, Mahmoud needed allies, and that was a tactical reason why he wanted to reconcile the Shia. But there was a bigger picture here. Abbasids took over from the Umayyads. They really had a sense that they were going to bring about a reconciliation. So we have to step back a bit and look at this. Uh, we've talked about the Sunni-Shia split in the past. It begins with a dispute over who's going to be the first caliph, Abu Bakr or Ali. Uh, but then it seems like we have a reconciliation when Ali eventually becomes the fourth caliph. 
But then we have another split again after Ali is assassinated between those who want to follow his family line in the Umayyad family, who essentially seize power. However, the Abbasids have come along a hundred years later and overthrown the Umayyads to some degree with a, a large amount of Shia support and there's the habit of cursing the Umayyads. Everything they did was wrong. So there is a big hope on the part of the Shia that the Abbasid revolution is actually a revolution for them. In the first place, remember the Shia wanted to bring the Caliphate back to the family of the Prophet, specifically to the descendants of Ali. Well, the Abbasids base their legitimacy on bringing the caliphate back to the family of the prophet. Now they didn't want to go for a descendant of Ali, they went with an uncle, Abbas, but still it's closer to what the Shia want. This time Shia is still a very loose grouping that we're talking about. They don't have a formal doctrine. So for some of them the Abbasid rule was something they could work with and for some of them it was not. So at the time that Ma'mun takes over, the biggest threat is Shia rebellions, which are breaking out throughout the empire, particularly on the periphery in Yemen, in Iran, and so forth. So this looks like a good opportunity for Ma'amun, who of course sees himself as the great Muslim leader, to bring them all together. But there's another factor about Shiism that plays well into the agenda of Ma'amun. Remember, the Shia, as we've discussed, believe in act spiritual leaders who have a special insight and the highest of these are the Imams they believe there's a direct hereditary inheritance from Ali through his children a direct line the future Sunnis don't believe this at all they believe the decisions are made based on a study of the action of the Prophet and his companions and really power then belongs to a body of scholars who are able to interpret this they're the ones who write the history well, the first problem for Ma'mun is that most of those traditionalists, the scholars of Hadith, they had supported his brother Amin. Secondly, to justify overthrowing Amin, Ma'mun claimed to be the better religious leader, and therefore he was justified you know, to clean up the faith. Well, if that starts to sound a little bit like an imam, in fact, Ma'mun claims the title of imam for himself. Now exactly what he meant by that was not clear. In what becomes Sunni Islam, an imam is the prayer leader. He's the person at the front of the mosque. It has a very definite meaning in Shia, but it's not clear whether Ma'mun is saying he's like the prayer leader of the whole nation, or he's really claiming this authority of the spiritual leader. In all likelihood, he saw himself as some combination of the two. So while he is definitely not claiming to be essentially a Shia Imam, he's portraying himself as the, the ultimate religious authority with the hope that, okay, this is close enough to the Shia doctrine. He's bringing them together. He's sort of making a combination of these two. So this leads to Ma'mun's most controversial decision. Now, we know that Khalifs had designated their successors since the time of the Umayyads. During the time of the Umayyads, this turned into a virtually a hereditary dynasty where it passed from father to son. The Abbasids, of course, attacked this. And one of their big attacks is the fact that the Umayyads were just regular old kings like any other country. 
So the Abbasids were a little bit looser. I mean, they still appointed everyone from their own family, but they would appoint brothers and nephews as well as sons. It was still pretty much a dynasty. But theoretically, the Abbasid Caliph is picking his successor on behalf of the whole Muslim community. Ma'mun breaks from the practice of keeping it in the family by selecting as his successor the person who is to be the next Shiite Imam. Now this might sound a little confusing, but remember up to this point we've got two chains of leadership. We have the Khalifs being picked within dynasties, and the Shia have their own chain of leaders. They have the Imams who are descended from Ali. Well, Ma'mun, who sees himself as the great reconciler, he's going to bring the two of these together. Well, the eighth imam in the chain, who is the son of the seventh, is a man named Ali Arida, or he's known as Imam Reza in Persian. Reza being the, the Persian version of Rida. He is designated by Ma'mun as his successor. So these two offices are going to be combined. And this, you would think, would make the Shia happy because this is their chief demand. Well, Ma'mun doesn't stop there. He takes other steps to reconcile the Shia. Of course, the Shia believe that Ali was the rightful successor to Muhammad. And this is their key point. And that the first caliphs, Abu Bakr and Omar, were usurpers. The proto-Sunnis strongly revere Abu Bakr and Omar. Ma'mun declares, again in his role as the senior religious authority, as the wisest man in the caliphate, he declares that Ali was the best of the original companions, and thus that would make him the best of the Rashidun caliphs. Well, you can sort of work backwards from there. He was the best one, but he didn't get the job initially. So he's not going quite as far as the Shia would like, but it's a huge concession. And even people who would curse Abu Bakr and Omar, that had been a crime, pardons them. He lets them go. So even if he's not embracing Shia doctrine fully, he's creating a climate in which the Shia can practice their faith and reconcile. No mainstream caliph before or after would ever go so far to accommodate the Shia. Despite this, they reject his efforts. Now, this is one area where the Shiite version of history is completely at odds with the Sunni version. So, depending on what you read, you're going to get totally different stories. But we will try to sort this out here as best we can. Okay, so, long story short is that the Shia, for the most part, reject Ma'mun's offer. Based on that, Ma'mun realizes he's not going to be able to reconcile the Shia, and so then he turns and decides he's got to reconcile with the, the mainstream Baghdad establishment. And they kind of realize at this point that they have to work with him. In any case, Ali Arida dies a year after he's made the successor. And then Ma'mun will appoint a new successor, and he, he never appoints a, a Shia figure after that. So this initiative dies right there. Now, after the fact, the Shia history will portray Ali Arida as another martyr and Ma'mun as one of the great betrayers. 
the whole thing is basically described as a devious plot by Ma'amun to sully Ali al-Rida. The idea is to draw him into politics, into corruption, so that he will become tarnished. However, he's far too just to do this, and Ali al-Rida doesn't fall for any of the tricks. And so Ma'amun has him killed after a year, and this is just another story in this betrayal. And Ma'amun becomes one of the great enemies of the faith. He, he, he's up there with Muawiyah and Yazid, even though in reality he went further than anyone else to try and reconcile with the Shia. Well, what actually happened may never be known. What's clear is Mahmoud genuinely thought he could win over the Shia as allies, and he really thought this would bring them together. The reason it didn't work is that there were numerous Shiite rebellions going on in different places in the empire. They weren't coordinated. Most were fairly independent. And again, Shiism is a very loose concept at this point. And so no one was able to actually stop these rebellions. So a, a lot of the proto-Shia do accept Ali Arida as a leader, but not enough that this initiative would do anything to stop all these rebellions. And so in the face of the fact that there's just continuous rebellions going on and no one's able to stop them, when writing the history, rather than saying that, that we were all just disunified, they go back and, and make it a, a conspiracy on the part of Mahmoud. And it, how... Ali al-Rida actually died, we don't know. Some suspect that he may have been poisoned and that Ma'amun may or may not have been part of this. Remember, he's also the successor, so it could have been a rival who poisoned him, or he could have died of natural causes. We really don't know. The reality is, though, by the time he died, he had really lost his usefulness to Ma'amun, he had been sidelined, and he probably wouldn't have been allowed to become caliph even, even if Ma'amun had died. The, the irony here is that even though this figure, Ali Arida, lacked the influence and the appeal among the Shia at, at the time to unite them, in martyrdom, he becomes one of the most popular figures ever. His shrine, which is the shrine of Imam Reza, is located in the Iranian city of Meshad, which is the second largest city in Iran, which is built around this shrine. The word Meshad means place of martyrdom. So the whole city is named after the shrine where Imam Reza is buried. This is one of the busiest pilgrimage sites on earth. In fact, there are so many donations left by pilgrims at this shrine every year that if this were an independent company, it would be the fourth largest earning corporation in Iran, which is a country that has a, has a huge oil business. So, ironically, in death, Ali Arida, or Imam Reza, becomes one of the most beloved figures, and his betrayal by Ma'amun is, again, one of the lowest points in this history of continuous betrayal and oppression, when, ironically, what was going on was exactly the opposite. Well, why did things get so bad? How do we get such a 180 on history? Well, we have to remember that Ma'amun has a few factions with him. The Shia are one faction that he's actively trying to court, but they're not organized enough for him to be able to win them over. There is, of course, the scientific and intellectual establishment, which is the one he has the greatest success with. They love him. But there's also his military, his largely Turkish mobile 
horsemen who have effectively put him in power. So Mahmoud's got these Shiite rebellions going on all over the empire. He's not able to reconcile them. He's got this force of highly mobile warriors. However, they're, they're plainsmen and nomads, and they extend, tend to cause trouble when they're in the city with nothing to do. So you've got to find a way to keep them employed. Well, you can see where this is headed. Crushing the rebellions with the Turkish cavalry is going to have implications that no one could have predicted at the time. At the time, it just looks like a way to solve two problems at once. Of course, bringing this foreign military into the empire will be the single most influential act of Mahmoud's reign. And, I mean, history clearly shows that the surest path to the collapse of any, uh, any state is letting a foreign force become your military power. In fact, anytime the military does not accurately represent the makeup of your population, you're going to have problems, whether it's using mercenaries or recruiting from a narrow segment of the population. We can look at the Ming Dynasty in China or the Roman Empire. But Mahmoud doesn't have a lot of choice in this case, and it works in the short term. A second factor here is that the Turks really get their identity in this empire fighting against the Shia and crushing them. And so when the Turks eventually take over the empire, they are fiercely Sunni and will be noted for this, and they will remain that way. And so all the the successive Turkish dynasties, which are going to uh, dominate Islam after this, are known for being ruthlessly pro-Sunni and anti-Shia. And so the Sunni-Shia split that Ma'amun was trying to fix is going to rip even wider. In fairness, we have to say, although the, the Shia definitely do some historical revisionism in portraying the, the story of Ali Arida, the fact that they get crushed and massacred afterwards sort of gives them a justification for portraying this negative history. Okay, well, so Ma'amun has given up on his plan to reconcile with the Shia, and so at this point his advisors are strongly pushing him to go to Baghdad and take on the establishment there. For the first six years of his reign, he ruled from the city of Merv, which is the capital of Khorasan. But as with everything, if Ma'amun's going to go back to Baghdad, he's going to have a very careful scheme in order to do this. So as we mentioned, one of the things he does is becomes the great patron of the arts and sciences. And really, he has a genuine interest. This is what he really loves. So he sponsors some of the the greatest scientists in Muslim history. For example, the Musa brothers, which is a family of engineers. They're they're known for, among other things, a book entitled 100 Ingenious Devices with these inventions that are well ahead of their time. He sponsors the first Arab philosopher, Al-Kindi, a man we have talked about, the great translator Hunayn ibn Ashaq, and really the translation movement really gets going under Ma'amun. So that is a huge success. On the religious side, Ma'amun wants to advance the idea of his image as defender of the faith. And to be defender of the faith, you need enemies. The Shiite rebellions are one of them. 
He decides to create the other by declaring his intention to finally defeat the Byzantine Empire or see them convert to Islam. This has been really the big thorn in their side. They're never able to take over Constantinople. They have to live next to the Byzantines. And by this point, it's really like a, a sham. They, they have battles every year or so, but really they're getting along very comfortably. Well, Mahmoud declares that Byzantium is the big enemy and he's going to convert them. So he knows he needs to keep this Turkish military occupied and he does succeed in capturing a large portion of what's left of the Byzantine Empire and it is no coincidence that that area today is known as Turkey. But the last group that Ma'mun has to take on were these traditionalists, the experts in the Hadith. And this is where the terminology can get a little bit tricky here, and this is partially because we've been simplifying things. So we've been talking about Sunnis and proto-Sunnis as basically the people who followed the mainstream caliphs. These are the ones that followed Abu Bakr, Muawiyah, and didn't go the Shia route. That's correct. That's who the group is politically. And of course, that's their big doctrine, that they don't agree with the Shia version of who should have been caliph. But in terms of the law and the theology, what's going to become the official legal and theological views of this group, that part hasn't been decided yet. There are a number of different ideas and different schools that are competing. Ma'mun, for example, he has a vision that the caliph is, he is the highest religious authority. That's a very different view from what the traditionalists have. Now, the traditionalists are called Sunni, or sometimes you'll see in Western sources they're called Sunnites, which is the name for them, but realize that's not an Arabic term. They're the ones who base everything on the reliance of the Sunnah. Remember, the Sunnah is the tradition of the prophet. We know that eventually their view is going to win out, although it doesn't look like it at this time, and that their doctrine will become the official doctrine of this group of people, and therefore they become the Sunnis. That's the point that this group, which is the mainstream, becomes the Sunnis because they adopt the doctrine of these, these traditionalists, the Sunnites. Now, had Mahmoud won out, the mainstream of Islam might well be called something else. Who knows, Mahmoudists or, or something. Well, Mahmoud believes that the Khalif is God's representative on earth and the ultimate religious authority, even if previous Khalifs, like the Umayyads, hadn't lived up to this role. The traditionalists, on the other hand, believe that the Sunnah of the Prophet is the ultimate guide. Now, that might not seem like such a problem, but we know there is no single simple book of the Sunnah. We've talked about the Hadith and we talked about the incredible, laborious process of putting this history together. Whole institution, a very large establishment of scholars, develops over these first two centuries who have put together the Sunnah, the Hadith, the commentaries upon it, the interpretations, what does it all mean? They become a big institution. So in their view, and this is the ulama, they're essentially gardens of the faith. So I mean, no matter who is Khalif, we are the ones responsible for interpreting what, not just what the Prophet would have done, but what he actually did. Okay, so many of Ma'mun's grand plans obviously go against them, like declaring that Ali is the best companion based on his wisdom. 
So this is really a struggle for ultimate religious authority in an empire that's based on religion. Well, the litmus test for this struggle is an issue we've discussed in the last two episodes, and that is the question of the createdness of the Quran. And we've discussed why this is so important in, for example, debates between uh, Christians and Muslims, and how it fits well with the uh, philosophy and science of the day. But it has yet another implication, and that is on who has the ultimate religious authority. So, let's look at the two sides. Ma'mun believes that he's the ultimate authority, that the Khalif is God's steward on earth. He may not be perfect, but he's been entrusted with all of God's creation. And this is a popular idea. Uh, think of the role of Adam and Eve in the Bible, how they are put in charge of everything. And, and we know they're not very wise. They do a lousy job of it. There's that scene where God brings all the animals before Adam and has him name all the animals. Because the idea is that he's responsible for all of this. So... If the Khalif is the steward of all God's creation, and the Quran is a created thing, no matter how great it is, then that means Ma'mun is entrusted with the stewardship of this and, therefore, its interpretation. This doesn't mean he's better than the Quran, but among humans, he's the one who's been entrusted to interpret this. And this is fairly close to the Shiite concept here, so he's still uh, showing that. Now, on the other side, if the Quran were uncreated, eternal, co-equal with God, then no human has custody over it. Someone could study it, and therefore the people who had studied the most and accumulated the most knowledge, the most approved knowledge, would be the most qualified to interpret it. So the idea of an uncreated, eternal Quran fits better into the concept of the traditionalists. Well, in 827, that's 14 years into his 20-year reign, Mahmoud is feeling fairly powerful here, and we know he's very ambitious. He declares that the createdness of the Quran is official doctrine. Now, this served his philosopher and scientist allies very well. We talked about the Mu'tazilites. This made them very happy. But Islamic jurists which is where most of the traditionalists were, were required to declare their agreement to this doctrine. If you just read in a philosophy book or in a book of Islamic theology, you see all these uh, huge struggles going on over these issues, and you wonder, okay, why is this such a big deal? I hope we've made clear the implications that this has. Well, the traditionalists at first refused to answer the question one way or the other. And their position was, this issue is not mentioned in the Quran or the Hadith, and therefore we have no right to speculate on it. Of course, this goes against rationalist ideas. The idea of the Quran being created, again, it's, it's not mentioned in the Quran, but it is something that is derived through the use of rationalism and logic. And the Mutazilites, the philosophers, the rationalists believe that this is something we can and should do, even with questions about things as holy as God's word. The traditionalists say, you shouldn't be doing this at all. So they refuse to answer the question. 
So the most stalwart of the traditionalists, and the, the key among them, the hero, is Ibn Hanbal, refuses to speculate on this. Even he is punished, he's locked up, he's whipped, he refuses to answer. Well, Mahmoud dies in 833, so you might think there's going to be a reprieve. But his two successors, that's his brother al-Mutassam and Mutassam's son al-Wathiq, they keep up the inquisitions. So for three caliphs, Ibn Hanbal and his associates, they refuse to break. They stick to their point of, no matter what you do to me, I am not going to speculate on issues that are not in the Quran or in the Hadith. And this is the very traditionalist approach to this. Well, it wouldn't be until the third caliph after Ma'mun, and this is al-Mutawakkal, who reverses the policy. Uh, he not only cancels the Inquisition, but he goes to the other end. And so the doctrine of an eternal Quran becomes official Sunni doctrine. But the ultimate victory here of the traditionalists in this struggle, it has much larger implications because their doctrines, the doctrines of these, quote, Sunnites here, were meaning the traditionalists, basing everything on Hadith. These will become official Sunni doctrine, and therefore this is the point where this majority, the mainstream, becomes the Sunnis. So Mahmoud's vision of an all-powerful caliph in a united Muslim nation, of course, it didn't come to pass. We've seen he fails on a number of issues. But in the process, the final version of Sunni Islam was to take its form. He sets out wanting to reconcile these two factions. The end result is we end up with a traditionalist uh, Sunni doctrine being the mainstream and the Shia being pushed even further. So in Shiite history, this becomes one of the great betrayals. Additionally, by Mahmoud's recruitment of the Turkish warriors and the way that they did come by their identity, adherence to this Sunni identity and Sunni doctrine becomes the defining characteristic. Of course, the Turks are eventually going to take over, and so ethnicity, being an Arab, is no longer central. But what is central is the Sunniism. And this is something, at the time that Ma'mun begins, it definitely was not the case. Well, the rationalists would back out of the religious sciences eventually. We know the Mutazilites would fall. But the boost that Ma'mun gave to intellectual, technological, and scientific work carries on for centuries even after the Abbasids lose power. And this is something that can be lost in this process, that even though it's during Mahmoud's reign and afterwards that the strict vision of a traditionalist Sunni Islam at odds permanently with Shia Islam becomes the religious picture, his success in building up the intellectual and scientific frontier never stops. So even when the Turks seize power, essentially having a military coup, they continue to provide tremendous support for the academic side, for the scientific side. Uh, even philosophy, to some extent, takes a, a bit of a beating. But in the sciences, uh, they continue to push this uh, frontier. And so Mahmoud is a man who set out with a certain vision, 
for Islam. He had a grand vision for what the Islamic empire was to become under him. It didn't become what he envisioned, but there is no doubt that what he did and the changes that occurred during his rule would define the future of the Islamic world. So, as we like to say in history, for better and for worse, Al-Ma'mun really is one of the most influential and defining caliphs of the Abbasid Golden Age. Thank you again for your kind attention and all your support. Uh, We hope you'll join us as we continue to work through the Golden Age of Islam. Shukran jazilin wa ma salama.